Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar. On today's show, we're going to talk to Princeton political history professor Julian Zelizer about his new book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party. We'll also speak to the popular progressive activist Elise Hoag, whose new book, The Lie That Binds, takes a deep dive into the forces behind the conservative political machine and their efforts to thwart social progress. And Heather Digby-Parton will help guide me through this week's biggest news stories. If you're listening to the free podcast right now, do us a favor, support the show. You can help us by becoming a member over at rofpodcast.com. Here to break down this week's news, Heather Digby-Parton from the blog Hullabaloo. So, uh, Digby, just want to start off uh, this show. This uh, week has been um, rather difficult for um, me personally, but also for, um, in some part, uh, I know members of, of this community and our audience who also listen to the Majority Report. Um, and, of course, um, many people who were, were, were close to him, Michael Brooks, a uh, uh, contributor and, and sometimes co-host and sometimes host on the majority report uh, also host of his own show, the Michael Brooks show and on um, uh, Jacobin's weekend show passed away this week, completely unexpectedly and suddenly on Monday. And it's obviously as I think, you know, people <clears throat> would imagine to lose someone who is 36 years old is a, is a huge shock he meant a lot to thousands and thousands of people. I mean, I've been reading emails all week and getting messages on Twitter and, uh, I mean, just in, in a myriad of different places. Uh, and the stories of what Michael meant to people in terms of their political journeys um, and also what he meant to colleagues and to people that he brought onto his show and, and gave wider exposure um, was really um, stunning to read. And so uh, I just wanted to mention to this uh, to folks, if you are uh, not familiar with Michael's work, I would encourage you to uh, to Google the Michael Brooks show and go and uh, watch um, the, many of the videos and the interviews he did. He had a, a particular focus on international relations and 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 just internationalism and it's a fascinating stuff, very important to understand uh, what's going on around the world. And, and in many respects, a lot of inspiration that can be taken from people's movement, workers' movements uh, around the world and the way that they uh, have made positive change or, in some instances, uh, not uh, been able to make positive change. So uh, I would encourage people to go uh, check out Michael's work. And I just I want to say rest in peace to him again, as I have many times and rest in power as well uh, this week. But, you know, the we keep doing what we're doing and, and hopefully we will make at the very least some small steps in a uh, positive way in this country um, that, uh, you know, he would have <laughs> he obviously had been. Uh, working and fighting for for uh, years and years. And so um, with that said, let's talk a little bit about what 
happened uh, this week uh, in the context of uh, the news. And um, I know you've written a couple of pieces this week that in many respects sit tangentially but are, are very relevant or at least uh, sit tangentially to two big stories that um, are really in the news this week. One is the ongoing coronavirus uh, infections that are happening uh, throughout the country. We're starting to hear people are starting to talk about, uh, you know, whether they are, their kids are going to go back to school. I mean, it is, uh, speaking as someone who has two kids, I can tell you it is a a mess and a um, like a, a rolling tragedy in some respects, frankly. And we're also seeing in that same story, the coronavirus, the failure of our government to provide adequate relief to people and to cities and states, which in turn encourages these cities and states, some instances, to push and open up in a way that is far more aggressive than we can afford to do in the middle of a pandemic. And now, because they did that, uh, because they lacked the funding, they didn't, you know, they needed the sales tax in a lot of these states to make up the funding. Because that, of course, now people are having to go back inside. The economy is dipping again because the virus doesn't care uh, if, you know, there is no sales tax being collected and the U.S. government hasn't provided some type of living wage or living support for millions of workers. Uh, the virus doesn't care. It's not going to go away uh, just because people are sitting around pretending it's not there. And people are going to react in a rational way to that, which is I don't want to get it because, A, even though it appears at this point anyways— to not be as deadly as it was in those first weeks, maybe more so because we have better treatment and because of the cohort that it's infecting, because uh, I think more uh, vulnerable people are staying, you know, uh, are being that much more careful. But even with the death rate uh, being lower, the implications of getting this can be horrific for years to come. And so um, you wrote a piece about Dr. Deborah Burks. Her name Deborah. Yes. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Tell tell folks because she has been sort of a little bit. She's not been in the news in the way that Fauci has, but she's been there uh, for a lot of this time. Who is she, and 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 what 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 happened that you caused uh, you to write about her this week? Well, it's interesting. She. Um... <sighs> I wrote when she first came on board. I don't know if you remember the very first day when she was introduced. She came up and gave one of those dear leader speeches, you know, that, you know, kind of it's just such a privilege to be with someone who is, you know, so brilliant and 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 has put together such a genius group of people, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of creeped me out. I'm going this it was not a scientist speech, let's put it that way. It was a dear leader speech. Right. Uh, and I went back and I, so I went and looked at her and I wrote a piece back in March about her and uh Dr. Redfield, the head of the CDC, because when I went and looked into it, I realized they're part of what what has been described as a subculture around Mike Pence's office of evangelical Christians in the public health realm. Now, that may sound weirdly almost oxymoronic, uh, but it isn't. There's a group of them, and Redfield and Burks are among them, who've been working in this field for for decades 
that are evangelical Christians, and they were focused on HIV around the world with a strong emphasis on abstinence-only education for people in Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Burks is a real scientist. Well, Redfield is too. Um, and Burks has, you know, was part of this group, but apparently in the HIV realm, she was not solely pushing uh, abstinence only for girls this was this was their emphasis but she was you know in that crowd and my antenna went up with that i'm going you know okay so what is this a public health subculture of evangelical christians who are anti you know um kind of you know who are pushing abstinence only and what right. what is this but apparently this existed and burks is part of it and although she had a lot of, um, you know, she she was wi- widely respected by people in the field, et cetera, et cetera. It occurred to me that there was something, uh, there was another dimension to her uh, and Redfield that we needed to pay attention to. Well, as this pandemic has unfolded, you know, she used to show up at all the all the the briefings that they were allowed to come to, and you know, right. Dr. Fauci has been very, you know, I think. He's been as politic as he's able to be, being a, you know, a New Yorker and also a guy with, you know, who I don't get the sense with him that he's afraid in any way of of anyone in the in the administration. But he was trying to keep his you know flow of information open, protect his own scientists, and also maintain his integrity. But there's a limit to how much Dr. Fauci is able to do that because of who he is and his personality. Dr. Burks, on the other hand, she has been very, 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 you know, politic, let's put it that way. Well, there was a big article in the New York Times, uh, I think it was a week and a half ago or so, a couple of weeks ago maybe, that, that traced what happened in the coronavirus response in the, in the, in the administration during the month of April and and how that was how that came down where they they verged into a whole new strategy of just let's open up the economy where the virus is done we're we're just going to move ahead and you recall that Trump did a really kind of abrupt pivot twice the first time he was you know this is terrible we're going to have a bad two weeks and then he said well I want to open up on Easter and get the pews open right. and then he reversed course again well all that was taking place there was a second task force, a sub-task force that was meeting in Mark Meadows, the chief of staff's office. It was all political hands, and it included Dr. Deborah Burks. And they were meeting sort of on the sly, apparently, or at the very least, doing their own thing. And their their purpose was to get the economy open as quickly as possible. And Dr. Deborah Burks was, was giving them the uh, the data that they needed to make that case to the the main task force to the president and then to the public. And it, it, it turns out it, that it reminds me that that dynamic is eerily reminiscent of sort of the stovepiping of of exactly. of intelligence leading up to Iraq, right? Where it's like we're going to create exactly. an outside sort of entity. I think in the case of the Iraq, it was the Defense Intelligence Agency. I think it was the DIA that is going to basically be our intel shop and it's going to provide us with the intel uh so that they'll re- will reverse engineer this. We want it we want the economy open now get us the data that supports that argument. 
Exactly. And and uh, Dr. Deborah Burks was playing the role in that of George Tennant, the head of the CIA, uh, who was, you know, sort of providing that information um, to this sub-task force, this sort of second you know, well, actually, it was a third. Jared Kushner had his own task force going as well. Um, in any case, what it turns out to be is that Dr. Deborah Burks has within the she she had an office in the West Wing. She has an office in the West Wing, and she was, as described by the New York Times, very happy to be part of the president's team. And I think we know what that means in Donald Trump's world, right? I mean, this is right. not about giving him the straight dope. It's about giving him the information that he wants to hear. So she adopted this very optimistic view of the of the virus uh, and where it was going back in April. She picked the most optimistic model, which was that one that was put out by the University of Washington, and there was a lot of pushback on that from other epidemiologists. Even at the time, much less later on when it became obvious that they were wrong, they were the ones predicting 60,000 deaths back in April. She adopted that. She said that this was great, and she was giving reassurance throughout the White House that the virus had hit its peak, that it was not going to come back, at least anytime soon, and gave them what they needed to, you know, go around to the rest of the country, to go before the public and say that, you know, it's time to reopen the economy. Well, we know what the results of that are. And I think that what this, you know, what this says is, you know, Deborah Burks has, you know, I think she sacrificed her reputation. Um, I don't know whether or not this is just a personality thing. She's some kind of people pleaser or whether or not it's ideological and she was a true Trump person. But I kind of suspect the latter because of the way she came into the task force and gave that speech at the very beginning and has gone on television giving other dear leader speeches about how his, you know, Trump's uh, history as a businessman has given him a tremendous ability to understand data and complicated, you know, um, kind of details about epidemiology. I mean, really, really, you know, it's something that you would hear from Kaylee McEnany. That's who she sounds like, or Kellyanne Conway uh, at times. So, you know, this this is just yet another cautionary tale, and it's exactly what you say. It is in line with what they did in Iraq. This is how these Republicans operate. And, you know, here we are again. We didn't do anything about it the last time, right? I mean, nobody paid a price for what they did going into Iraq. And here we are again with this, with this, uh, you know, COVID-19 public health crisis, just unprecedented, at least for a century. And we have the same thing happening where these people, and you see it happening in the states too, you know, Ron DeSantis down in Florida, they've been fudging the numbers. You see Deborah Burks now, her, her latest um, attempt to, to, you know, skew the, the data is that they removed the reporting requirements from the CDC and pulled right. them into a privately run uh, database in Washington. Well, that has, you know, screwed up all the, the numbers that we have at the moment, and they, they people rebelled, the states did, saying, hey, you can't just pull this on us late, you know, abruptly and not give us any time to prepare. And so it's again, it's left to outside, um, you know, sort of journalistic right. um, 
you know, entities like the Atlantic has this COVID-19 project that tracks all these numbers around the country to try and even give us an idea of where the virus is and what's happening with it. You know, thank God there are some that are doing that. Johns Hopkins has another one. You know, there are others. But the idea that they removed that from the CDC, that turned out to be Dr. Deborah Burke. So, you know, this is what happens. You put these over and over again. We see it. You put these, these um, you know, partisan uh, players into these these you know jobs in which they're supposed to be you know completely nonpartisan, and this is what happens. And I think there's going to be and there has to be some kind of a reckoning on what went on with the the oh response gosh. to the to the crisis. And uh, you know if there isn't, we've got a big problem. And I'm going I'm very concerned that there won't be. You know that this. I mean, if the Democrats have their way. You know, I don't mean to be pessimistic about this, but, you know, history has shown that given the chance to avoid doing something difficult like that, um, they'll avoid it. And, you know, I mean, just this week we we, we saw, you know, apparently Norm Eisen has a book out about the impeachment. He was on the the Judiciary Committee staff that was looking at the impeachment. They had a a very, you know, um, you know, complete uh, impeachment set of impeachment articles set out, and it was vetoed by the leadership and Nancy Pelosi, and they were forced to just go go with that narrow impeachment on the on the Ukraine stuff when, when they had a whole list of things, right. many of which seemed totally reasonable to me. And you know, the political malpractice there isn't what John Bolton says. It's that if you put out a bunch of articles that that of impeachment make the case, you give people an opportunity to pick and choose. Some Republicans, probably not, but you never know, might have been able to do that. You know, might have said, look, well, I reject it. You know, kind of what Mitt Romney did. But yes. they didn't do it. You know, they were cowardly. Well, well but it's 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 be it's it's beyond that. I mean, like, let, let I mean, let's just assume that we can start with the idea on day one that in the in the context of the impeachment, that none of these things were going to uh, that, that they weren't going to impeach him on anything. But what what they what it what it did do, and it certainly was effective in the context of, of what was going on with Ukraine in terms of the election. Right. I mean, it shut down an operation yeah. that they would have surely been rolling out by now had there not been impeachment. But that's not. But the point is, is it, it is. It is members of our government saying to the American public, these things are wrong, (laughs) right? Like it's basically just saying, here are the parameters. Whether the Republican Party votes with us or not on this, we're going to make the case that you cannot do, uh, you cannot enrich yourself this way, you can't be involved in this type of corruption, you can't be involved in this type of like uh, malfeasance and misfeasance. I mean, there's a... There's a whole litany of of things that he could have been impeached for, and the failure to do so, yeah, would have been Democrats voting uh, exclusively, but it would have been on Republicans to justify why they didn't find these things impeachable, which I, 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 you know, we lose sight of this, and I think, you know, knock on wood, Donald Trump appears to be uh, headed to a, a major defeat, but again, you know, We've been down this road before, but to be clear, the numbers that we're seeing, particularly in terms of like senators around the country, these numbers were there before COVID. They may not be, yep. you know, it, COVID may have added a point or two here or there, 
But the Republicans in the Senate were in big trouble in February and early March before uh, this all this COVID hit. Make no mistake about that. And, and, and part of it was that they tied themselves to Donald Trump dramatically. Yep. And um, so there was an efficacy there. But it's also about governance, like, you know, going forward. If uh, Joe Biden wins and if uh, the Democrats take the Senate and the House, there needs to be markers and there needs to be, you know, look, we had John, uh, um, uh, John, you basically telling the White House, you can do what you want. This is the guy who wrote the torture memos, you know, and went on to uh, Stanford Law, I think it was, or Berkeley. I'm not sure which, you know, forgive me, but I mean, he's a a tenured law uh, professor right now. Uh, and 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 there are many many figures like this that we owe it to ourselves in the future um, to hold these people to account. And the Democrats have utterly failed in that respect. Um, but uh, we, we're a little far afield of where I wanted. Yeah, sorry uh, about that. <laughs> to go. No, no, but but it, it's an important thing to bring up. And um, you know, we have this situation where um, a Burks. Uh, uh, you know, is is another one of those cronies, and 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 what what just astonishes me, you know, is like how do they think? You know, it's, it's like one thing when uh, some official in the Bush administration uh, told um, uh, his name escapes me at the moment the the reporter Ron Suskin, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys are members of the reality based community. We make our reality. And I mean, I can see how you can do that in the context of we're going to, you know, we're going to put uh, facts on the ground and um, we're going to uh, change uh, Iraq. I mean, they did it, not necessarily for the better, not necessarily the way that they wanted to, but they were able to pull that off. And certainly, you know, like we see in Israel, we're going to put uh, facts on the ground and it's going to change the trajectory of things because we're. We have all these people in uh, land uh, that, you know, we were occupying and 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 then all of a sudden we'll just have so many people there. You're What are you going to do about it? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that dynamic exists. I don't know how you can be a scientist and think you're going to get away with that with a pandemic, with a virus like like I just like I don't I don't understand like what their end game was here. You can have all these people come out, but if infections go through the roof and ICUs start filling up, rational human beings are going to say, um, I think I'm going to skip the nail salon today and for the next couple of months. I think I can probably cut my own hair. I'm not going to go into that bar. I mean, this is, I, 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 you know, I don't know how out of touch you have to be with humanity to not get this. And that's what we're seeing now. We're also seeing the complete failure of particularly the Republicans in the Senate to co- because Democrats have already passed the HEROES Act to come up with any type of relief bill for coronavirus. I mean, we need so much help right now. States and cities need so much help. And I just don't know how these Republicans think that by denying states and cities this support, they're going to help themselves like i just don't understand like you know if you can lie to the 
the general public, why can't you lie to your base and tell them like, yeah, yeah, we're denying uh, city support, but I don't <laughs> exactly. do, like. I mean, do the base even want that? Like, I don't understand this. I mean, this looks like and 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 I, you know, it's one of those things where it's also a little worrisome. I mean, to me, it looks like they're committing, um, you know, political suicide. But maybe they know something that I don't know. Uh, that oh, the American public they they just want us to be really clear that this is not a real thing. I, I, I don't, I'm not getting it. I don't either. And I mean, maybe this is just a result of, you know, the, the sort of degradation of the Republican Party over, over years again, that, that now the people who are in office really are dumb. I mean, I, I don't know how else to put it. I, I mean, that they, I, it's tempting to think that they have a plan. But when you look at the way that they're responding now, to the fact that the economy, by the way, which just this week is now showing serious signs of going back to where it was four months ago, which is totally logical considering the fact that, you know, as you put it, people are seeing what's going on and they're withdrawing. You know, you're seeing they do these studies based on restaurant reservations and stuff like that, and it's showing that people are going, staying home again. You know, they're not going out, which was only which was, of course, what was going to happen. Anybody with a brain could have predicted it. You didn't have to be an epidemiologist to see that once you start bringing in the refrigerated trucks, because you don't have room in the morgue anymore, that people are going to look at that and go, hmm, maybe this thing really is kind of hurtling out of control. I think I'll just stay home and, you know, make some spaghetti. I mean, this is not a, this, this is not something that requires a lot of sophisticated thinking. However, these people seem to really... Uh, not understand that the only way that they might preserve their own jobs or preserve any kind of credibility in the Republican Party is to sp- is for the government to step in economically and help all these businesses and try to keep you know for instance they're saying that they want they will they refuse to give that six hundred dollars extra a week they don't want to extend these unemployment benefits well. You know, that wasn't done just so that people could feel good. That was done because they knew that people were going to spend that $600 in the economy in some way or another, whether it's buying from Amazon or buying more groceries or doing whatever it is that people are spending that money on, maybe even paying off, uh, you know, their debts in some ways. But whatever it was, was that it was going to keep money circulating at a time when people are staying home. This is just basic, you know, it's not, you don't, again, you don't have to be an economist to know how that works. And they're trying to withdraw that. Now. And just to be and clear, now, now let me, they're... let me just want to add one thing about that. You know, the, the, the sequencing it's it's not only are they going to be able to to circulate money through the economy, which, of course, is, is hugely important, but it's also going to diminish the need to bring people out of their homes. Right. You're paying of people course. to stay at home and you're paying companies to stay closed in many respects, some of them. And what you're doing is you are attempting to at least, if not defeat the virus, um, hobble it so badly that after a certain period of time, we can come back out and live a quasi-normal existence until we get that um, that transmissibility uh, rate below, you know, one person gives it to one person, to where it's one person gives it to half a person, essentially. Uh, or three quarters of one, and that, and then it starts to peter out on its own on some level. 
Um, and I mean, that's the thing is that like the money is for the economy in the short term, but it's also the for the economy in the long term because it keeps exactly. people at home so that in the midterm they can come back out. <laughs> and that's what they did in Europe. That's how it's what they worked. did in Europe. That's how it's and, working there. And and on some to some degree, it's what happened in the Northeast. Yeah. Insofar as, but instead of it being money that kept people at home, it was sadly the first place Fair. the thing hits, and it was watching thousands of people die, uh, to and 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 making people take it seriously, um, and some you know some measure of relief from the federal government that is again drying up now, and so I I don't know how they think that this can happen without without paying people to stay at home and paying them enough so that they can actually like pay their bills it's just it's well, insanity how the political illogic of it i mean we're going into an election right and here you have their opponents the republicans have their opponents the democrats willingly saying we want to, you know, we want to put a bunch of money out there. We want to help people in your states, by the way, in places like Florida, in places like Texas. We want to give them money and make their lives better. And by the way, you know, you'll probably be able to take credit for that if you vote for this, and you may get reelected because of it. It's a gift. It's a political gift that the Democrats are handing them. I mean, if they were as hardcore as Republicans, they'd be sitting there going, hey, you know, let's not do it and let the let the Republicans, you know, lose their seats, and then we'll come back and we'll win. I mean, it would it, the, the, the politics of this, just on a sort of a rank, you know, cynical level, um, should be that Republicans should be, you know, clamoring for this help for their own cities, for their own states, for the, their own constituents. But instead, they're saying things like, you know, Rick Scott, the senator from Florida, that Democrats just want to spend money. You know, uh, okay, but you, who cares? They want to spend it on your people at a time of great crisis, and they're willing to help you and help your people, your constituents, and you're just sitting there spitting in their faces. It's it's the most, I mean, I think that somehow or another, I mean, you know I've been observing this for many, many years. The Republican Party has been sort of, you know, racing toward the edge of a cliff for a long, long time. But they've finally gone over it. And, you know, as you say, you know, you're wondering, geez, what, do they know something? What's going on? I just think they're they're going over the cliff. Unfortunately, they're going to take a lot of people with them. Right. And I don't even know if it's, you know, it, this is, this is a, you know, a horrifying prospect that they would sit here. I mean, we've got this unemployment um, benefits. They're running out. I mean, this is almost over. And if they pull the plug, and they really seem intent upon, you know, basically – taking people's incomes and cutting them in half right now at least at least yes if not yeah if not more and 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 i you know i just and saying you know it's time for you to get back out to work as the pandemic is surging all over the place and by the way in places where it isn't surging you watch it will be if they force people back out of their houses and we're going to see, There's and speaking of work. back out of their houses, we're going to see millions upon millions of evictions. Um, oh, I mean, fact. could be tens of millions of evictions take place in the, in the you know, weeks to months at this point. Uh, moratoriums are running out. Eviction moratoriums are running out in certain places. And, and, and as people don't have the money, I mean, uh, 
I, I mean, you know, I, 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 I sort of feel like this is like one of those weird things where you just come to the end of, of, of it. And, um, you know, you use the metaphor of the Republicans uh, driving off a cliff. Well, they've pulled us all there. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I think like they're just, you know, hitting the accelerator and jumping right off. I, and and yeah. for the life of me, I don't see where they anticipate landing. But um, I, I guess we will we'll get a, a clearer notion of that as weeks go on. And it could just very well be there is no landing for them. Um, meanwhile, just to pivot a little bit, um, we have had this ongoing um and this, of course, has been an issue in this country for some time. I mean, and the broader issues have been an issue in this country for since its founding. But this movement of Black Lives Matter, um, you know, in the weeks since now months uh, since George Floyd's uh, killing, murder by a police officer um, in Portland in particular, but the other cities around the country, the protests have been ongoing. And the administration decided to use Portland as sort of some type of test case, a, uh, you know, a, a almost like a pilot program, if you will, on um, rolling out the unnamed federal police force that was, I mean, none of these people were ever designed for this type of like job. They were never trained for it. But also there doesn't seem to be any type of like command structure that we're aware of or accountability for these people. Uh, they were renting vans and pulling people off the street. And, you know, I guess, I mean, you know, what you could call disappearing them for a certain period of time. I wasn't, you know, no one's been obviously like murdered by these police officers in this context. <laughs> Um, but, uh, very disturbing trend. And the Trump administration says we're going to do this in other cities. So, and of course they're doing it in democratic, uh, controlled cities. Not that it makes it any worse or, or better, but I mean, clearly that, that, you know, they're, they're playing, they're showing their hand a little bit in terms of it being a, a political tool to the extent that it works. I don't know that it will, but it is, uh, you know, you, you wrote a piece basically calling for the end of the department of Homeland Security. I remember when this was created in the wake of 9-11. People seem to not be aware that this is, you know, this organization is only 20 years old. Um, and Democrats were against it, if I remember correctly, but largely because of a union issue. I mean, people were very cowed at that time. But we're, we're seeing why this entity is so dangerous, right? This idea that, like, we can create a police force, if you will, from all these disparate um, agencies that are under the auspices of the Department of Homeland Security. And that seems to be very dangerous. And, you know, I will say this. I'm looking at a book called Ordinary Men right now uh, that is about the um, implementation of the Holocaust. Now, I know, you know, you're not supposed to cite the... Hitler and the Nazis, uh, when you're talking about this, but I'll just say in terms of like when they were looking for uh, the worst of atrocities to be committed, the military would not do it. And they recruited policemen to do it. And I'm not 
I'm not equating these things, but I am saying that this dynamic is um, similar, and you cannot, and and I am saying that you cannot get to uh, something as horrible as we've seen in the past without going through this stage. That doesn't mean that this stage is going to lead to that, but you know, this is uh, you're you're working one of those combination locks. And maybe there's a series of six things. Well, you got to get through the first one. And they're getting through the first one right now. Or maybe it's the second. I don't know. But um, we're headed down a road here that is highly problematic. And I think it seems to me to be just a function of, like, Donald Trump think this is going to help his election efforts. Well, absolutely. Although, I mean, I just setting setting that aside. Trump thinks this is going to help his reelection ef- efforts. He believes that it's 1962 in America and the suburbs are all upset. It's white flight. And, if, you know, if you just make cities look like crazy, you know, riotous places with a bunch of, you know, racial minorities, that he, all his voters will come out and vote for him. I mean, this is this man is a walking anachronism. That is simply not true. That is not how the suburbs are, and they've done a lot of polling and stuff, but he just believes this. Having said that, that's not there's a whole group of other people who are, you know, sort of involved in this that have a different you know, obviously have a, have a, a different motivation. Leading among them is William Barr, the uh, Attorney General, who you know, when you go back and look at his history, going back to the 80s, <clears throat> He's been very much in favor in any time there's any kind of an uprising of any kind to sending in federal troops. He tried to do it back in the 80s. He had this, you know, he's done an oral history that's really interesting. He did it before any of this happened, in which he remembers, you know, going to George George Bush Sr., you know, when during the L.A. riots, and he pushed the idea of sending in first the military. They didn't want to do that. Then he says, well, I can gather a, uh, you know, a force, a federal force to go in and, and you know, take over the streets. He, he was saying that the, the L.A. riots were about gang affiliations, which was complete nonsense in the same way that his current, um, you know, sort of his current rationale for doing what he's doing is that it's Antifa, this, you know, that they're a terrorist organization. So he's been doing this for a long time. He, in, in, in 1991, when they had the, the L.A. riots, um, he, he, he actually chartered an airplane and went around the country and gathered a bunch of federal troops from different cities, from different agencies. We didn't have a Department of Homeland Security then, but we did have Border Patrol, and there were some others that they, that they had. He gathered them all up in an airplane and brought them to L.A. and put them on the streets. I, I didn't know this until recently, but apparently they were doing that, even, even back then. And, of course, Bush did approve of sending in the military to L.A., on the invitation from um, Governor Wilson uh, at the time, because they were having trouble deploying the National Guard, and and it, it happened for, with very little, uh, they they um, enacted, they evoked the Insurrection Act. In any case, Barr has been doing this for a long time. If you go back and look at the phone call that happened on that Monday after you know Trump was whisked off to the bunker quivering in fear because there were protesters in Lafayette Park. That Monday, which we now remember as being the day that they ordered them to um, violently disperse 
the um, protesters in Lafayette Park, he had a phone call. Trump had a phone call with all 50 governors. And he that's the one where he said, you have to dominate the streets, right. dominate, dominate, you'll look like jerks, et cetera, dominate. Bill Barr was on that call, too. And he said, you know, outright what he planned to do, which was we are going to send federal troops into the streets to quell these protests and go after these specific ringleaders and arrest them. And, you know, we're going to do all the things that they're doing in Portland. And as we've seen, they are doing this in other cities now. There's a new um, uh, piece in The Nation with Ken, by Ken Klippenstein, who's got a lot of great sources apparently in the Department of Homeland Security, that are saying they've been doing this since June, since, since Barr um, you know, said they were going to. They've actually been doing this. Now, the Department of Homeland Security is the, is the agency that has taken up this banner. Barr doesn't have direct supervision over the, direct, the Department of Homeland Security, but the guy who does, this guy Chad Wolf, is a functionary, and he's right. an acting head of department. You know, he's, he, in other words, he's a Trump flunky. Barr is the one who's running this whole thing. And, in fact, he has his own little aspect of this, which is the thing that they sent into Chicago this week, which is federal agents, meaning FBI and others, who are supposedly, quote, helping with crime. Uh, Across the country, you have federal agents of one kind or another, whether it's from DHS or whether it's under Barr, under the Department of Justice, going into American cities and making their presence known, whether they're invited there or not. They're going in and, and basically becoming involved in these, you know, whatever the local issue is, whether it's crime, whether or not it's protests. This is a move on the part of William Barr with Donald Trump's total support because he thinks this is going to help him get reelected. This is exactly what we were afraid of when they made the Department of Homeland Security. I said my mantra at the time was, if they build it, they will use it. They will use it, yeah. If you build a police apparatus, this is essentially the Department of Homeland Security is an internal police apparatus. And it is paramilitary. We've seen that with the ICE raids. We've seen it with the the way that Border Patrol behaves on the border, what they did with the kids two years ago, what they're doing in American cities. This is a paramilitary internal police apparatus. Of course it is. Look what they named it. Department of Homeland Security. It was right. I mean, there's a more fascistic name for a you know a, a bureaucratic department i haven't ever heard it and the minute that name happened i think we should have all known and i did i'm sure you did too i was protesting writing about it at the time going are you kidding me we're really going to do this and it's only belatedly come to you know people i, I can't remember the name of the guy um, but i wrote about it in my piece for salon was he was one of the he was one of the deputies of the early deputies under the Bush administration of the Department of Homeland Security and he says gee you know there were a lot of people saying that this could happen and I just thought that was crazy and we just needed to coordinate to fight terrorism you know well they're looking a little bit more prescient now yeah no right. kidding you know I mean if you know when it says you point out if you know anything about history 
you know, you don't build institutions that are, <laughs> that are that are made for this kind of thing. You just don't. You don't in a free society even create the institution that way in the first place. So yep. here we are, and I don't think it's going to work for Trump electorally, but I am really nervous that this Department of Homeland Security is now empowered in a way that, again, I'm very nervous right. that the Democrats are not going to take this on, because if they don't, we have got a real problem here, because you know President Tom Cotton, exactly. he's already written that he wants to use it. So, And I, I hope people have learned the lesson of this dynamic. You can have Barack Obama for eight years, um, and I'm sure you know, I say that, with with warts and all, yeah, as it were. I mean, we, we no, we we yeah, we're very critical. But in terms of like you know mild manneredness, the, uh, my point is is that you know the idea of going from uh, Donald, I mean uh, Barack Obama to Donald Trump seemed pretty far fetched. Uh, yeah. I can assure you, the idea of going from Biden sure. or whomever uh, in twenty twenty four to Tom Cotton. Uh, that is not nearly as far-fetched, and it is no. in many respects even more problem- problematic because the Republican Party is on a trajectory, folks. This is not a function of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a way station for the Republican Party, and they are in no way um, any indication that they're moving in any direction other than they've been moving in throughout this Trump administration. And so uh, things are not going to get better uh, unless, unless— the Democratic Party, if it's in a position to do so, begins to really sort of, uh, you know, reverse and hold to account um, what was done during this uh, during this era. Digby, um, thank you uh, for being there this week. Um, like I said at the beginning of this segment, it's been a tough week and I appreciate your um, uh, you're helping me through this segment. And so. um we will see you again next week, and hopefully uh, next week will be a little bit better for everybody. But um, well, I will see. Well, my pleasure, Sam, and, and my condolences to you and to your audience and to everybody who knew Michael and uh, followed his work. It's a, it's a serious loss for all of us, and I know it had to be particularly painful for you. Well, thank you, Digby. Thanks for having me, Sam. Heard me say many times on this show that Donald Trump is not a disease in the Republican Party, but rather a symptom. Our next guest has written an amazing book that pinpoints the exact moment the Republican Party charted a path toward an era of bitterly partisan and ruthless, power-hungry politics, ignited all by Newt Gingrich and his allies. Here to discuss his new book, Burning Down the House, Princeton professor Julian Zelizer. So, Julian, I um, I know a little something of uh, Newt Gingrich. I mean, I was um, uh, politically aware at the time he came into most prominence. But I have to admit that if if somebody had um, had held a gun to my head and said, when did he first get into Congress? I, I would have guessed in the late 80s and uh, the early 90s. But he had been there for quite a while, hadn't he? Yeah, he was elected in 1978. He was one of the first wave of Southern Republicans uh, who were coming to Congress to change the party. And he's there when Reagan's elected and, and is a zealot to do anything that's necessary 
so that Republicans can finally have power on Capitol Hill, which they hadn't had since 1955. So he's there. Not only is he there by 1979, but he's making a name for himself within a couple of years. He doesn't wait. He doesn't get along to go along. He quickly uh, starts engaging in his theatrics and attacking people to become a presence. I, you know, and, and, and you and I had um, uh, a conversation about your book on the majority report. And so I want to want to, you know, uh, do a slightly different um, um, conversation about Gingrich um, in, in this context. Uh, your book is fascinating, and I think it's a really important uh, read for folks who want to get a sense of, like, you know, where we are now, because I think, um, you know, we can draw a direct line between Newt Gingrich and Donald Trump. In fact, I, I think you make the, the argument like multiple lines. Uh, but, but, but give us a sense of the context in which, I mean, because so Newt Gingrich is in that first wave of, of Republicans that have sort of regrouped after, um, after sort of the, I guess the, um, uh, the, the, the Dixiecrats, you know, in, in Johnson's words, you know, uh, we've lost the South for a generation. Uh, I think, you know, he, he underestimated, but. Um, but he's part of that sort of almost like that first wave, that resurgence. It happens simultaneously with the sort of the 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 surge of Ronald Reagan, which had been building through uh, the the seventies. I mean, what what strikes me about him is that he doesn't seem to have an ideology per se as much as a will to power. Like, how do you reconcile that? Like, a like where? Like, why did he run in the first place? Well, I, I do think he's someone who's pretty power hungry. Uh, he, he was a Republican. He was never uh, a, a Democrat in the 60s when he's going to college and graduate school. He's a Rockefeller Republican, meaning he's he's part of the party that still sees itself as moderate. He at least says he's in favor of civil rights legislation, protecting the environment. Uh, and he switches incredibly quick. He switches about 1975 and 76 after having lost his first race. He's running again, and he starts to meet people connected to the conservative movement that will bring Reagan into the White House, and he kind of shifts over. And, uh, you know, he, he is a Republican. He is certainly not a liberal Democrat. But within that broad umbrella, this is a person who's willing to change very quickly, uh, to subscribe to lots of different ideas and to use different ideas. He's really a partisan. He's a, a partisan fighter who connects himself to the fate of this conservative movement by the late 1970s. And so uh, in many respects, I mean, he's he is an insurgent in in the most, I guess, cynical way uh, when he gets to Congress. Right. I mean, he's not, it's not an ideological one. It's just simply like um, he's he literally is. It feels like on some level, the story of Newt Gingrich is, at least in his ascension, is um, he's all but saying, uh, here comes the new boss, same as the old boss. That's exactly right. He's you know, he comes in office. He, he hates Democrats who he says are this tyrannical group of uh, politicians who just run everything without having any moral foundation. Uh, and he also does, doesn't like Republicans. He thinks senior Republicans have learned to live with the status quo, and they're uh, too easy to go along with the existing system. And, and so he introduces himself, just like you said, as the new boss. 
but as he's doing that and as he's attacking people for being corrupt, he, he's the old boss already. Uh, and he very much doesn't live by the principles he's calling others to live for. And that's a contradiction of Gingrich from the very beginning of his career right through today. So give me a sense of like what his is his first scalp, essentially, um, or is it just simply his most prominent scalp? The um, Speaker of the House, who at that time was a Democrat, Bob Wright, who had uh, basically stepped into uh, the shoes of Tip O'Neill, who had been Speaker of the House for like uh, decades, right? Um, and since seventy-seven, yeah. So, um, so, so, talk about like what, what his first scalp essentially is, uh, Bob Wright. Okay. Is that his first scalp, or is that just his biggest scalp? That's his biggest one. Uh, his first is actually Charlie Diggs, who's a founder of the Congressional Black Caucus, and. When Gingrich comes to office in 79, Diggs is in trouble. He's being investigated for kickbacks, receiving kickbacks from his staff. And he's under investigation, and Democrats are handling it. But Gingrich doesn't remain silent, as the other party often does. He instantly goes after Diggs. He spends a lot of time in the media arguing that uh, Diggs really should have nothing to do with Congress until this investigation is finished. And even Republicans are privately telling him this might not be the best idea for a Southern conservative to start his career going after a prominent African-American. But he doesn't mind. And in the end, Diggs is censured by the House uh, and and ultimately is actually found uh, guilty. That's his first strike. He uses ethics. He attacks Diggs and he makes a name for himself. Speaker Wright, it's Speaker Jim Wright, is the biggest fish, Jim though. Wright. Bringing down the Speaker is a big deal in Washington. Uh, and in 1987 to 89, that's the time that this guy is Speaker, Gingrich devotes all of his energy, day and night, 24-7, to trying to create an ethics scandal around the Speaker that will pressure Democrats into saying he has to go. How did he, I mean, was there any... Was his coming across the idea of the the efficacy of corruption? Was that a um, was that just simply trial and error, or did he have like a did he did he just have a theory that he had been waiting to put into practice that um, anti corruption could be uh, wielded by anybody regardless of how corrupt they personally were. Um, Or was it just that he had this theory that because the Democrats had been in office for so long, they had been in control of the House for so long, decades, that um, that the the ossification, I guess, that would have taken place uh, lent itself to that narrative? He knew this from day one of his political career. I mean, when he decides to leave being a professor, he was a history professor and run against a guy named Jack Flint, who was an old Southern Democrat in Atlanta, he instantly hones in on this theme. And he understands that this is a powerful theme, A, because Democrats have been in power for so long. So there's something naturally uh, problematic about almost anyone in power. So it's the kind of argument that sticks. Uh, It was also the era of Watergate, the end of Vietnam, when he understood a lot of people were distrustful and 
he himself as a Republican had to deal with this. So in his mind, and you see this early in his career, why not turn it on the Democrats, make congressional Democrats the source of corruption? And what's clear is he systematically uses this theme. In each election, he goes back to focusing on the corrupt Democratic majority. From the moment he's in office, this is his major theme. And he talks about ethics more than almost anything else, more than tax cuts, even more than fighting communism. It's the ethics of the Democratic Party. So he has a good instinct that this is going to be an issue that resonates in the United States and allows him to build a base of support. Uh, you know, the and, and, and I think, I mean, it, we should say that the corruption, you know, obviously I think is uh, effective sort of going in both directions. I, I'm quite convinced that the 2006 uh, Democratic um, con- uh, regaining of control of Congress was a function of corruption as much, if not more, than even the Iraq War, uh, frankly. Uh, I mean, I still have visions of, of Mark Foley, and uh, I can't remember who was the the whip at the time from Buffalo, New York, but he, he held a press conference and, and surrounded himself with children uh, to avoid the questions about Mark Foley. It was a stunning sight, but that corruption really resonates, um, or at least up until maybe the present day. Uh, as a, a political issue, but so uh, so so Gingrich um, goes after the, um, uh, the the Democrats with corruption, and how does he ascend to the leadership of the Republican Party? Well, it, it happens in 1989. So he's leading this charge against Speaker Wright, and and it's gaining a lot of traction. A lot of uh, Republicans are saying, "Okay, this guy's like Joe McCarthy, but." Maybe he'll bring us power finally. And they they start to endorse what he's doing. They start to echo his rhetoric. And more important, in in 1989, a few months before Speaker Wright uh, steps down, resigns, they elect him to be House Minority Whip, uh, which is a position in the Republican leadership. And that's all of a sudden when he's not just a political bomb thrower on the sidelines, a backbencher. But he's actually part of the party leadership, and he brings uh, he brings Speaker right down. So it's seen as legitimating what he wants to do. And, and then, really, the next person he squeezes out is the House Minority Leader Bob Michael, uh, who had been the House Minority Leader for a while. He was a get-along Republican, uh, but he decides in '93 that he's going to step down, and and the party was changing. And in '94, he's a year too you know too early. Republicans finally win control of of Congress, and Gingrich is part of that effort uh, with the contract for America and all the attacks he launched against President Clinton, and they make him speaker. And so between 89 and 94, this guy becomes the party. He becomes the voice of the party, and everything he was doing, which was seen as so toxic, doesn't disappear. It just becomes the formal uh, strategy of the GOP. And so just to be clear, he went from whip to uh, minority leader and then to speaker. No, he went right to speaker. Uh, so so, Michael, so he's, still, he resigns. Oh, he resigned. So he had already put his resignation in before the results yes. of the election? Yes, because of Gingrich. Gingrich basically had been squeezing him out uh, and, and making it clear he didn't want him anymore. So, so he wow. decides that he's going to leave. Uh, and then they finally win after all those years. 
did Michael, uh, do you think Michael uh, was, was, had regrets knowing that all of a sudden they were back in power or, or what? I mean, I'm, that, that's, I mean, of all the years to decide that you're going to resign and retire, right? right? Like Retire, yeah. Uh, for sure. He did have regrets. Uh, I, I mean, he had regrets in that he would have been the speaker. And exactly. after all these years, on the other hand, he was probably more than any other Republican, very familiar with what Gingrich was doing and very uh, f- feeling himself squeezed out of the party. So, so it wasn't simply I'm tired. I want to go uh, more. What was happening by that time was he understood Gingrich was taking over and it was clear there wasn't going to be uh, room for him to really remain in the party. Um, so this dynamic of, 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 of the Republican leadership at one point thinking like he's, he's like McCarthy, but he's, you know, he's helping us and we can ride this as long as it takes us to power. That, that decision, that model, I guess, ha- it seems to me to have been the one that they followed for the next 25 years, essentially. And at one point, you know, Frankenstein's monster um, becomes the doctor, too, I guess. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Uh, his, his story of rising to power is a constant compromise by leaders including people like Michael, who, who keep saying, well, okay, we can do a little bit of Gingrich, and okay, we can let him be part of our leadership. And, and they kept thinking they could contain him. Uh, once he was Speaker, Gingrich doesn't stop his style. He, he's still launching really blistering uh, character attacks on his opponents. He's doing things like shutting down the government as a way to get what he wants in, in the budget. And more and more by the late 90s, early 2000s, this is what the Republican Party looks like. And uh, he has taken over the doctor, the monster. It's all one, I'd say, by the early 2000s. And by the time he leaves, he leaves in 98 uh, because of his own scandal, which breaks in the middle of the impeachment. Uh, He's transformed the party. And when the Tea Party comes to town in 2010, they are Gingrich protégés. And Many of the people Gingrich worked with, they're now in the Senate, people like Senator McConnell uh, and Rick Santorum. And so the transformation is complete. And once we reach President Trump, uh, people who are still wondering how you get a President Trump really weren't paying attention to what happened to the party. Exactly. Exactly. And and um, uh, let me ask you this question, then I want to go you know, to sort of his relationship with talk radio, because I think if Donald Trump is if there's any archetype for what kind of politician he is, you'd have to look, I think, into, you know, um, a right wing talk radio, essentially, or a right wing, you know, uh, media. It, it, it migrated onto, uh, you know, into individual. But could w- was Newt Gingrich of his time? In other words, if we dropped Newt Gingrich and his whole M.O., into another era or even a parallel universe that had a slightly different history of where, I don't know, the, the two parties were on, on, you know, coming out of the sixties into the seventies. Um, would Newt Gingrich be effective? Like how much of his time was he, at least within the context of the Republican party? 
I guess what I'm trying to say is like, you know, did he make the Republican Party or where or was the Republican Party? And I'm not just talking about the leadership and but or, but the the electorate. Were they looking for a guy like this? Well, I, I think the, the party was uh, the party was feeling really emboldened after Reagan was elected. That seemed for conservative Republicans like something that would never happen. They were used to the Barry Goldwaters who lost. Uh, and then and then once Reagan's president, I think a lot of party leaders are like, well, why not get the whole thing? Why not get control of Congress? Why do we have to be a minority? And that's the kind of environment that I think opens the doors to people in a party saying, well, we'll, we'll become more extreme. We'll become more aggressive. We'll do whatever is necessary to win. Uh, so I do think that context mattered a lot uh, to him. He capitalizes on it. You know, there's moments when people don't capitalize on a context like that. He's also a media politician. He was a guy who understood how television worked. He really understood how investigative journalists were simply uh, even doing good work, really fostering uh, a lot of distrust about politicians and how our democracy worked. And, and he capitalizes on that as well. Could anyone have done it? Maybe. Um, but but he did it. And and he's the one who takes advantage of all of those things and, and uses them to become this leader. All right. So and, and maybe uh, obviously for obvious reasons, um, I may be suffering from a certain myopia in terms of what kind of lens I want to look at this. But um, if we think of Newt Gingrich as a virus uh, of some type of contagion, Right. That worked its way through the Republican Party and spread to the point where they got into a critical mass and the entire party, uh, you know, uh, becomes infected with this Gingrichism, if you will. Um, and and on some level, that's the story you're telling, uh, it seems to me. So to to really belabor the analogy uh if you are the epidemiologist who has told us about the contagion um this may be outside of your portfolio but how do you what like what reverses this yeah i I mean not much other than the party shrinking and losing its power i think uh, as long as the party uh is of the size it is, meaning capable of winning a majority of the Senate, capable of holding a lot of state houses, capable of having the presidency, there's certainly not a lot of incentive for them to change. And it's not as if this is about President Trump. This is the party. Uh, and, and parties don't change very easily unless they face some catastrophic electoral consequences or they simply shrink. Uh, as they had done uh, before the 1980s, and they're in need of growing, and that creates room for different voices in the party. But right now, we're not even close to that. This party is dug in, uh, and I, I don't think a lot of the leaders have any idea or conception that they're really going to change the way they do business. So you're looking for a series of electoral defeats, not just 220 that uh, leave the party out of power and truly desperate uh, if if they're ever going to grow again. That's it. But nothing in the short term. And, and, and just to be uh, just to sort of like uh, just tease that out a little bit more, um, because there it's not really that the party makes a decision. Right. I mean, because for all these individuals, they are not going to buck Donald Trump, at least in, you know, in the short term, because 
because they're afraid of paying a price with their electorate. They can't. I mean, for most of these people, they can't. They're stuck. Right. Like it's not a question that the the remaining members of the party would make a a, a decision to change. It's that they would get um, they would get ousted. because someone had come up with a formula that might be slightly better than theirs. But they're going to stick with what they know because they can't envision winning with their electorate in a different way. No, that's right. It's not as if there's some option of, well, maybe I should be more moderate or maybe I should uh, change my approach to how I even think about politics. Uh, If they do that, they'll just get replaced by someone who's more like Tucker Carlson. Uh, than George Conway in, in some ways. Um, and, and I think that if that's the choice most of the Republican elected officials face, there, there's no incentive to change. That just means you lose your job. Uh, and so this dynamic, it, if the party is about this, there's no room for most leaders to change. And, and that's the reality. And that's what most members of Congress understand very clearly. They're being rational. They're not being irrational. Uh, it, it might not be the right thing to do. Um, but at that level, that's how you keep your power. Yeah, and that's one of the problems with adhering to a party and a um, uh, a political ideology that says uh, everyone operating in their own best interests will lead to uh, a better outcome for society. I think every day the Republican Party um, shows us that's not the case, as does the president. Uh, Julian Zelizer, uh, the, the book is fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about it. It really... Um, for people who think that um, that Donald Trump is an anomaly, um, I you've written a book that I think shows they are they don't understand where we've been. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for this conversation. Julian Zelizer is a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University and a CNN political analyst. You can purchase his new book, Burning Down the House, wherever books are sold. If I told you that abortion rights was once a nonpartisan backburner issue you might look at me funny or probably just call me an idiot but our next guest has written a clear account on how this issue and other issues of social progress have been prevented by the right's political machinery in her new book the lie that binds welcome to the show progressive activist elise hogue so elise first off uh, let me congratulate you i know uh this week uh your book um hit the Bestseller list on Barnes and Noble, um, and uh, congrats, certainly worthy of it. Um, and uh, I, I'm glad uh, our timing has been uh, fortunate. We we just um, uh, were interviewing uh, Julian Zelizer on uh, this uh, this week's episode as well, and he gave us the history of essentially the rise of Newt Gingrich. And in mm-hmm. many ways, uh, Gingrich's rise tracks um, with the story that you tell, which is the um, the evolution of the uh, the I guess in the development of forces um, within the Republican Party and the conservative movement that um, were built around um, the question of a woman's right to choose and. So, I mean, give us give us the the I guess the early on this development, because and I don't think people really fully appreciate this in the early 70s. And prior to this, um, so-called evangelical Christians uh, 
the the question of abortion was not a political issue even after Roe v. Wade, uh, not nearly like it is today or was, I guess, 10, 15 years later. Uh, Describe how that came to be. Yeah, Sam, as a Texan, I got to say, I went to school with a lot of fundamental evangelicals. And so imagine my surprise when I found that actually W.A. Criswell, who was a leading evangelical at the time, actually a affirmed Roe v. Wade the day that it came out in a press statement, basically saying what's good for the mom is good for the family. We got to let her do what she wants to do. As late as 1976, the Convention on Southern Baptists affirmed Roe v. Wade. What really happened is in the late 60s, some guys who really, whose names will be familiar, Jerry Falwell and some less familiar, like Paul Weyrich, who we track really closely in the book, got really disturbed about the civil rights movement and especially a court case that actually said, uh, we're we're gonna force school integration and your kids are gonna have to go to school with black kids. And they first got involved in politics by fighting that ruling of school desegregation and they invoked a term, religious liberty. It's our religious right to not have our kids uh, go to desegregated schools. Um, You know, they sort of lost favor on an overtly racist platform, and I always say not because we solved structural racism in the schools, because we haven't, but because the country came to sort of accept the civil rights rulings. Um, And then something else happened, which is really interesting, which is that Phyllis Schlafly and her um, sort of cohort abroad at the Eagle Forum defeated the Equal Rights Amendment which had also had nothing to do with abortion. She never talked about abortion. She talked about mandatory draft for women, women not having access to alimony. Um, So you had the convergence of one group that was invested in propping up this sort of system of white male control, Jerry Falwell, Paul Weyrich, with the other ones, the the ladies, Phyllis Lafley, um, and they were like, well, shoot, we need a new issue. What's a good dog whistle? What's a good point of the spear? What will make people either shy away or, you know, we can tell a story? And they got on a conference call. This was 1978, five years after Roe. They got on a conference call and they ran through a bunch of issues. And then someone said, what about abortion? And that moment changed the history of our country created conditions for a hostile takeover of the GOP by radical fringe and has subsequently led to the oppression and suppression of more than half of the U.S. population. Outline for me that 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 control of the Republican Party, because um, in many respects, I mean, that is uh, that's the thing that sort of like, I guess you could say, tracks a little bit with with Gingrich's rise. And I wonder how much, you know, that. Uh, because the thing that fascinates me about uh, this with Gingrich is in, in that, I mean, there, there's there's a, a lot of parallels because I think Gingrich was really, to a large extent, within the context of the Republican Party, uh, devoid of ideology and just found uh, the one that was going to, you know, that was going to propel him. And it and it's sort of like, you know, it, it feels like that's a similar case, at least at the genesis of the question of 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 a woman's right to choose of uh, abortion uh, that question was you know a non-ideological one just more about like a will to power one but, like where where do these things you know h- how does this get integrated into the Republican party yeah it was um it was a, lo- a lot of money 
a lot of energy and a lot of what we now call disinformation, right? They set to work. Paul uh, Weirich, who also founded ALEC, which I assume your your listeners are familiar with. This is the with. American Legislative um, Exchange Council, which basically uh, provides a clearinghouse for right-wing uh, legislation economic, that yeah yeah that is uh, um, essentially fed to them by corporations and then uh, dis- distributed it out to lawmakers across the country. Right. So another like trace it back to the point of origin, um, and you've got uh, you've got um, you know the corporate interests on one side and the sort of ideological zealots on the other side, Paul Weyrich sits in the middle. He called himself a dominionist. He believed that God gave white men the right to rule all systems, certainly the family system, but also economic, social, and then political system. So Alec was one prong, and then they had this sort of religious zealotry as the other prong. And so I think, um, you know, when you talk about Gingrich, one of the things that um, we talk about with Gingrich is he is sort of the midpoint of the story. So if Weirich and Falwell started thinking, how do we maintain control for a small number of people invested in uh, propping up a white patriarchy um, in a changing world, right? The backdrop was civil rights. It was women's rights. It was LGBTQ rights. Um, And then you've got Trump, who has sort of become the deepest manifestation of that. Gingrich was right at the center. And I think Gingrich is credited with a few things. One, um, the full manifestation of just unapologetic power, right? Like he combined the, or he concretized, I should say, this sort of victory of the zealots within the party over what people would call the Rockefeller Republicans, the small government, but socially liberal Republicans. Gingrich's rise was the end of that wing of the party. Um, and then the other thing that G- Gingrich did, which people now forget about, he was a precursor to the cruelty that is actually endemic in Trump, right? Right before him was Bush Sr., who, even though I didn't agree with anything he did. He was sort of thought of as a compassionate conservative. Gingrich threw all of that off. He was like, you know what? This is war. Cruelty is part of war. We're going to take no prisoners. And then the third thing about Gingrich and his rise to power is it facilitated the rise to power of someone we know very well right now, the new age Phyllis Schlafly, Kellyanne Conway, who Gingrich gave a leg up through her polling firm, put her in place for the contract with America, and she has gone on to sell anti-feminist, racist America to a whole bunch of white women subsequently. So um, uh, so now we have the sort of the outline of how we got here um, and the, the strategies. Tell us a little bit about uh, where we were during the Bush administration, because we also I mean, it seems to me there was also a little bit of a hiccup on the nominal left during those years. I mean, I, I distinctly remember uh, Hillary Clinton, maybe it was in 04 um, and and others other luminaries of the Democratic Party starting to like, I don't know, flirt with the idea of like, maybe we shouldn't be so, um, you know, adamant about this, you know, and, and I don't know if it was just a rhetorical <laughs> flourish. I mean, right. I mean, I'm not imagining so this. Here's, here is the amazing gamble that they made. 
The legal right to access abortion and not have politicians meddle in your family's personal business and your, you know, an individual's personal decisions is and has always been immensely popular. It was popular back when uh, Roe was decided. It remains incredibly popular today. What they gambled on when they said, let's pick abortion, let's make abortion the Trojan horse around which we build this control ideology, is that underlying stigmas about women, sexual women, oh my God, women who want to have sex without actually procreating, and then specifically women of color and terrible stereotypes that Reagan had really invested in about women of color generally, black women specifically, were going to lead to this sort of like shrinking back from the conversation. Because if you actually tapped into that deeper racism and misogyny that was so pervasive in culture, you were going to silence the majority. And I think we did see that through the 90s, right? People continued to defend the legal right, but turned the other way as that right became meaningless for increasing numbers of people. And always, as always happens with oppression in the United States, the most profoundly affected were low-income women, rural women, and women of color. So wait, so I, I'm not I'm not 100 percent clear. So the gamble was by the Democrats that maybe uh, we back off this. It will it will it will it expose what's really going on. Like, I'm not I'm not clear on what the, what you think this what, what you're you're arguing the strategy was. Um, so basically, I don't think it was a conscious strategy for many Democrats. I think it was an emotional reaction to underlying misogyny and racism that was sort of like. We should feel right like we still see this today, like women who terminate pregnancies are, you know, there's something shameful about that. I'm not saying that. I don't believe that. I talk about my abortion publicly. Right. But there are a lot of people who still think like it's selfish if you don't want to do that. And so instead of calling that out, some Democratic leaders shrank from the conversation. There were other Democratic leaders that very explicitly believed despite evidence to the contrary, that this was a loser issue. So we should shrink back from it. We should like try and give on it. And, you know, look, we were, we have had a lot of democratic leadership that's looking for compromise, that's looking to build across the aisle and that we're slow to recognize on this issue as on so many others, they're what they were looking for compromise. They were looking for dominance. Those are two totally different things. Yeah. I think where I was headed with that was that 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 dynamic is analogous to almost every other dynamic we watched over the past. Uh, Frankly, I mean, you could argue even during the Obama years, not necessarily in terms of abortion rights, but in terms of other things like there seems to be um, there 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 seems to have been a 20 to 30. I mean, really, I mean, a 30 year now uh, project by the Democrats. Maybe you could argue even uh, starting with Carter. Uh, project by the Democrats to sort of like try and um, some people call it triangulate, but the idea, like <laughs> some people say it's, it's appeasement. It's like, well, maybe if we, uh, but a fundamental at the root of it, what seems to be a fundamental um, and I'm sure some of it was ideological in some instances as well. Uh, but in terms of a tactic or a strategy, seems to be just some like um, fundamental misunderstanding of what what's going on with their opponents. 
on the right. Like there is no, there is no, you know, I, I mean, I think like particularly in the context of abortion at this point, and I don't know if this was um, conceived of this way by Weirich, but it seems to me that this is less about the termination of a pregnancy, but more about the control of the sexual organs of women. (laughs) Right. I mean, um we, I called the book The Lie That Binds because I wanted to call attention to the central lie um, that they claim their ideology is driven by compassion for outcomes of individual pre- pregnancies. Nothing could be further from the truth. What they found is focusing in on what is and has always been both a medical procedure and a very, very personalized decision about our own families created a really excellent dog whistle slash litmus test for people who believed in white dominance and male dominance. And if you look, there's a chapter in the book about the Federalist Society. And when they were looking for a litmus test for young lawyers who were aspiring to become judges and create a corporate right wing, um, you know, dominant takeover of the courts, they found that if you map their views on controlling women through abortion and restricted access to contraception onto the rest of their views. It was an excellent proxy for everything the Federalist Society was looking for. People that's fascinating. That holding, isn't that, that amazing? The that's data fascinating. Shows that, um, yeah, that's and fascinating. data, people assume is, um, you know, that holding anti-abortion positions maps onto religiosity. And actually, we, a study that came out last year shows it has nothing to do with re- religiosity. Lots of people of faith actually support legal access to abortion. It most likely maps onto uh, regressive views about societal equity for, for women and people of color. I, I, I want people really to absorb that last part because that is that is absolutely fascinating. And it, it ends up being... Um, a wonderful device too for you know i mean you know if if i want to know um if, if i if i want to uh uh you know find out like you know what uh what someone's educational status is what their um what the health actuarial tables are what their race is and i don't want to feel comfortable asking the question uh, uh any of those questions i simply say what's your area code uh, or zip code rather. And I can go uh, and get the data all I, uh, right there. I need, if you're in a wealthy data, a wealthy zip code, I can, you know, more or less guess what the rest of your, uh, you know, your demographics are on some level, uh, you know, to, to some, you know, to a relatively, um, high degree of, of assuredness. And it's fascinating that, that the desire to curtail abortion rights, um, tracks in that way. All right. So with, with, so, with all of this, the, the the book that you've written, I mean, your relationship to the issue of abortion and um, broadly speaking, a, a, a woman's um, uh, emancipation and, you know, uh, economic freedom, so, uh, sovereignty of their own body um, is uh, is one of an activist. Like, what do we do with this information? What do we do now? You know, the the book was really written to say how did we how did so many people get it so wrong in 2016? And part of it was not knowing the history. Part of it was 
buying into the radical right view of like, oh, there's this benign, even if we believe they're misguided, pro-life movement over here that's siloed. What we found is that by ignoring both the infrastructure on the right, and I don't mean the, the GOP infrastructure, although of course that plays a role in it, but the groups that tout themselves as overtly pro-life, pouring resources and propping Trump up, we missed that he was really rising to power. We missed that they were willing to back him um, because his racism, xenophobia, and misogyny was actually a feature to them, not a bug. We cannot afford to make that mistake. And then the second piece, which I think we covered a little bit in our conversation about the Democrats and their role is, you know, we really need people to understand, and this is Democratic leadership, but this is also people that sidestepping an issue that is uncomfortable to them is actually surrender to the other side, that they have banked on our silence. They have created an agenda that is entirely subsumed within a Trojan horse of abortion. And unless we are willing to break the silence, call out their focus on abortion for what it is, a control ideology that crops up white male dominance in a country that doesn't want that, we're never going to get to where we need to be. We're never going to be able to get there. That second part, I think, is really fascinating and something that people really need to uh, internalize. And and in terms of the first part, um, do you think... And and this is maybe I'm asking a question now as someone who's uh, your experience in sort of like the, the broader uh, movement of of left politics. Um, do you think that there is an awareness amongst the 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 institutions of the Democratic Party, the Democratic establishment, whatever, whatever the the thought leaders of uh, you know the people who who uh, control the money in the Democratic Party. Do you think that they understand, and maybe it's a separate question from whether they care, but do you (laughs) think they understand that this is not just Donald Trump? That the problem, I mean... You know, I mean, this this is a little bit outside of your uh, your portfolio. And, uh, you know, I know there's some landmines here, maybe. But let me ask you this. When Joe Biden and he's sort of backed off this, but I think that it, it, when he articulated it, it represented at least the um, if not the genuine, sincere beliefs, but at least what um, what people want to project that they do believe. That without Donald Trump, the the, the Republican Party will, um, you know, return to sanity. And and frankly, we heard Barack Obama say this. I don't know a half a dozen times at, during his presidency. Like, if they win, they'll return to sanity. If they lose, they'll return to sanity. Well, they lost and they won, and they didn't return to sanity. Um, <laughs> there, there is. I this mean, is not like it's not. This is not a Donald Trump problem. This is a. Republican Party problem that we have. Yeah, I, uh, and do you think that that, met, that 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 people understand that in the halls of power within the Democratic Party? Uh, you know, look, I think this is squarely in my portfolio because I consider myself a good political strategist for longer than I have been a reproductive rights up activist. But um, I think, look, I think there's a spectrum of understanding, and I think there's not a small amount of nostalgia in the misunderstanding, right? Um, Because what I have found, first of all, we say all the time, 
getting rid of Donald Trump is an absolute must, no matter what. And it's the beginning, not the end, because the forces that put him in place are not going to go quietly into the night. And that's why we have to win in November, but we have to make it a transformative moment and our own analysis of what is actually going on in this country. Um, that being said, you know, a lot of what I found is that this is generational. Um, that's, you know, some, some folks in the party, be it donors or, or, you know, elected officials or politicians or, you know, party officials, um, they, they sort of remember a time and aspire to a time where, uh, cross partisan collaboration was not just possible, but it was actually prized. That has not been the reality. I mean, honestly, you know, the book charts that Gingrich was really a turning point on that. But obviously, that went into overdrive with the first black president. And I think that's why it really does get into this control mentality, that they are not interested in negotiating or going back any place except where the country is ruled disproportionately by white men. And we cannot accept that. Democrats have got to be the party of plurality and diversity. There is no way to win otherwise, and there is actually no way to have a just and civil society otherwise. Well, uh, all I can say is if you have uh, if if someone has nostalgia for a time when Demo- when Republicans were, um, were 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 not the problem in, in the manner that they are today, they've got to be pretty old or they're borrowing other people's <laughs> memories. And uh, maybe it's time uh, for uh, some new leadership. Uh, Lise Hogue, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. So good to talk to you, Sam. Thank you. Elise Hogue is an American progressive activist who served as president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, reproductive rights lobbying and advocacy organization since 2013. Pick up a copy of her new book, The Lie That Binds, online and in bookstores everywhere. Hey, that's it for this week's uh, Ring of Fire Radio. Thank you uh, to all of our free podcast subscribers who became members this week. I know we're keeping the Show open to everybody because of uh, this era of COVID. But every time a free listener becomes a member of the show, you continue to ensure our ability to produce this program week in, week out. Thank you again. If you want to become a member and you want to support this show, rofpodcast.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can watch our videos on YouTube. You can go to ringoffireradio.com to find out more. And also, check out my daily show. It's called The Majority Report. You can head over to majority.fm. Every noon, we go live. Join us, uh, will you? And lastly, I just want to end uh, my sign-off by, again, paying my respects to uh, the late Michael Brooks. Google him. Uh, follow some of his videos on uh, on YouTube. You will you will learn something. I'm Sam Cedar. This has been Ring of Fire Radio. Like a southbound tree. Here's a song for leaving. Don't you know the pain? Part of the healing moon with a halo, like a 
Engine on the radio Advertising the promised land Everything that attaches Someday falls apart When the plan collapses It can break your heart Like a southbound train Here's a song for leaving Don't you know 